Right, well, not long before Christmas, I was doing a little bit of shopping, as a lot of people do at that time of year, and I went to my local supermarket, and uh, I was walking up and down and selecting my groceries and then putting them on the conveyor belt, getting ready to pay. And joining me in the queue and dotted around this quite crowded store, there were many customers, some of whom looked absolutely overwhelmed and exhausted. Uh, some were losing patience with their unruly and feral children. Others were filling their baskets with very unhealthy food, sugary foods, crisps, alcohol, and the rest. The cashier at the end of the conveyor belt looked very bored and demoralized, and I'm guessing all the worse for taking on a little bit too much overtime during the seasonal rush. And I myself had a pretty busy few weeks ahead of me. I was a bit distracted. If I'm honest, my mind was elsewhere. And I absently glanced around me. And honestly, I felt precious little empathy for all those around me. If anything, and I say this to my shame, inwardly I felt a little bit critical and judgmental of some. Why is he wasting so much money he probably doesn't really have on such unhealthy food she doesn't really need or on so many presents nobody's ever really going to want? And the truth, again, I'm not proud to confess it, I didn't really care as I queued up. And I say all this to contrast for you my wrong and sinful attitudes and my cool unfeeling heart with that of Jesus, which is where our passage from Matthew's gospel begins today. Matthew is going to take us today into the most holy place. It's the beating heart of our Lord and Savior. And we're going to see today what his inner thoughts, what his emotions, what his, his very feelings are like. And so starting at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, let's read this next section of Matthew. And I'm reading today, and I will be throughout the year, in fact, from the NLT, New Living Translation. I'm using it this year. I love the NIV. I've been reading it since it was first published in, I think, 1979. And I just wanted to have a bit of a change this year. So here we are. This is the NLT of Matthew 9, 35 and following. Jesus traveled through all the towns, all of them, of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed, what? Every kind of disease and illness, every kind. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Into chapter 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal, again, every kind of disease and illness. Here are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also called Peter, then Andrew, Peter's brother, James, son of Zebedee, 
John, James's brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep, those sheep without a shepherd. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy and cast out demons. Give as freely as you've received. Don't take any money in your money belts, no gold, silver, or even copper coins. Don't carry a traveler's bag with a change of clothes and sandals or even a walking stick. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve to be fed. Whenever you enter a city or village, search for a worthy person and stay in his home until you leave town. When you enter the home, give it your blessing. If it turns out to be a worthy home, let your blessings stand. If it is not, take back the blessing. Any household or town refuses to welcome you or listen to your message, shake its dust from your feet as you leave. I tell you the truth. The wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah will be better off than such a town on the judgment day. So we thank you, Lord, for your grace to us in giving us your word in our own language in so many different translations and for preserving this for us despite many centuries of attack uh, Lord we have your word and we pray now that as we consider it together that we will know your Holy Spirit is here illuminating every word on the page for us to know more of you and to meet you today in your word Amen Right, so this passage, this passage I've just read to you, make a note of it in your Bible if you mark your Bible, and I hope you do. This marks a very clear and vital transition in Matthew's Gospel. See, up to this point, Jesus has been modelling his stunningly attractive and supremely effective work to his team of 12 and to a wider group of followers. And Matthew has already told us on several occasions how all that went down. In chapter 7, people are amazed, he said, at Jesus' teaching because he teaches as one who has authority, quite unlike the pompous and ineffective clergy of the day. Matthew has also told us earlier in chapter 9 that people are filled with awe, not just at his marvellous words, but also at his miraculous works, and they can only praise God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before. And once again, summarizing the, the comprehensive excellence of Jesus' ministry here in verse 35, our passage, Matthew says, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. Think about that. Every kind of of illness. I actually drew up a quick A to Z of complaints and infirmities this week 
just to give an indicative insight of the far-reaching span of Jesus' amazing ministry. So here we go. He healed things like A, arthritis, B, broken bones, cancer, deafness, epilepsy, flatulence, gastroenteritis, heart failure, infertility, jaundice, kidney stones, leprosy, meningitis, narcolepsy, osteoporosis, polio, quadriplegia, rabies, scabies, thrush, urethritis, vertigo, whiplash, xerostomia, ask a doctor, yellow fever and zinc deficiency and more. His authority to heal was stunning. But here comes this transition I mentioned earlier. See, up to this point, Matthew has only ever described his team of 12 as disciples, and he's done so actually on 10 different occasions. Disciples, disciples, disciples. And the word disciple literally means learner. It means apprentice. It means student, perhaps. Those guys have watched Jesus closely and they've listened to his teaching and they've asked him questions and they've taken copious notes, no doubt. And for about two and a half years now, they've been at their desks, as it were, in Jesus' school of ministry, learning and gleaning from the master. But now, here, all that changes. And for the first time in his gospel, Matthew, in verses uh, 2 and 5 of chapter 10, Matthew begins to describe these 12 disciples as apostles. The first time he uses the word. And it means sense ones. It means envoys. It means emissaries or representatives. And that's because Jesus is now going to send these 12 students out to say the same, same things he said, to do the same things he did, and most scary of all, they're going to do all that without him standing at their side, beside them. So the time for observation and note-taking is all over. This is the time for them to go and replicate what they have seen and heard. How scary is that? Well, why this sudden change of direction? As I've just said, Jesus' ministry was going so well. It was going amazingly well. Why change a winning formula? And there are, in fact, I think, two reasons. The first is this. Time is running out. Jesus knows that his ministry is going to last about three and a half years and he knows that the tide of popular opinion is soon going to turn against him. And he knows he's going to go up to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected, tried, crucified, and killed. And he knows that he has about a year, just over a year, to pass on this torch to his followers. And he knows that they're going to have to sink or swim. And he knows that 11 will swim, and one, tragically, Judas, will sink. But time is short. And so there's this growing sense of urgency in Jesus' ministry for that reason. The second reason, I think, is made clear for us in verse 36. Verse 36. See, Matthew, himself one of the twelve, an eyewitness who studied Jesus very closely, he records here what he could not fail to notice about Jesus' 
heart. He would not have seen this in me, queuing up in Aldi or Little, wherever it was, the week before Christmas. But this is what he says about Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, the dominant impression Matthew has when he looks at Jesus in that moment is his extraordinary compassionate heart. And the word translated compassion, uh, Greek word translated into English, compassion, is a really intense word. Uh, it's when something disturbly, uh, profoundly disturbs you and you feel it profoundly, you feel it really deep down in the pit of your stomach. It grieves you. It literally means Jesus was gutted by what he saw that day. And Jesus cannot and does not hide his overwhelming depth of feeling when he looks out on the masses. It's visibly churned up inside. And he has a strong and pronounced emotional response to what he sees here. He wells up and his heart just goes out. It breaks for the multitudes. They're weighed down. Their lives are such a mess. They are preoccupied. They're helpless, it says, harassed, distressed, directionless exposed to exploitation and harm. They are at a loss to know where to go for help. Their political masters have burdened them with crippling taxes they cannot pay. Their religious leaders, the Pharisees, are indifferent and uncaring towards them. They just pile pressure and guilt upon them the whole time. They blame them for not doing better, and they fail utterly to protect them or feed them. So here's the second reason for Jesus' ministry transition. Jesus' huge compassion for the crowds just compels him to multiply by a factor of 12 the mission to the lost. He has. So let's just pause to reflect at this point, shall we? On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being totally uncaring and 10 being Jesus-level compassion and love. What score do you give yourself this morning for how compassionate you are for those without Jesus? And would those who know you best agree with the score you just gave yourself? Well, I'll leave you to reflect on that. Jesus turns to his followers, followers and he tells them what he is seeing. These needy crowds to Jesus are an absolutely immense harvest. And the harvest is right here too. We've just heard about our food bank. Hundreds of people in desperate need at our door every week. Harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. But, says Jesus, there's a complication. And there's a problem here. See, the harvest is right here. That's great. But there are so few workers. 
And in fact, this is something of an understatement, I think, of Jesus' here. Really, at this point in Matthew 9, there's only one worker, and it's Jesus. Anyone who knows me well will tell you that I have got a very strong work ethic. I'm a grafter. I work hard. I always have done. I like to put in a shift. I like to get things done. And if this was me speaking here in Matthew 9, I would naturally say, look, the harvest is plentiful. Look at it. But the workers are few. Therefore, come on, guys, let's roll up our sleeves and let's get to work. But surprise number one, Jesus doesn't say that. He calls them first to prayer and only after that to action. There's so much to do. There are so few people to do it. So let's pray. There was a time uh, very early in the days of Mother Teresa's mission in Calcutta that she founded when the sisters alongside her were becoming overrun by the demands that were placed on them. There were far more needy and desperate people on their doorstep than they could cope with, and they had to start turning people away. Open wounds were being left untended and exposed to infection until the next day. Homeless orphans were going away, crestfallen, to sleep in the streets. And so one of the novices approached Mother Teresa and she said, what are we going to do? We're sending people away. We are overwhelmed. We do not have the resources we need. The sisters are brokenhearted. They are discouraged. They are exhausted. In other words, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Mother Teresa thought for a moment. Do you know what she said? She said, thank you, sister, for bringing this matter to my attention. From tomorrow, we shall get up one hour earlier. And we shall spend that extra hour together on our knees before God in fervent intercession. Sounds completely mad, but it isn't. That, my friends, is what faith looks like. And thank God they had Mother Teresa running that place and not me. Because I would have said, thank you, sister, for letting me know. We'll have to get up an hour earlier and finish an hour later to fit everyone in. When I work, I work. I really work. But when I pray, God works. When I work, I work. When I pray, God works. That's a word for some of you today. I just know that. The harvest is plentiful. The problem is the workers are so few. So ask God then to send out workers into his harvest field. And what this means is very simple. Intercessory prayer is the means of attaining a goal that will certainly be reached. We pray that God's going to raise up and send out workers into the harvest that will be reaped, not because the outcome is uncertain if we don't pray, but because God has appointed prayer as the means by which the world will be reached for Christ. That's the way God works. So that's surprise number one, pray first. Then Jesus springs surprise number two for his 12 disciples to the shock and I think dismay of the 12 
Jesus enlists them to be workers in his place. He's going to multiply his ministry by 12. And I say dismay because these 12 disciples, the Gospels tell us, were so often annoyed by the crowds. They usually found appealing to Jesus to send people away. Oh, it's late, Lord. Tell the people to go home. They're crowding around you, Lord. Tell them not to push. All these people, Lord, they're getting hungry. They're a problem. They're a nuisance. They're a burden. Send them away. Children, get lost. The Lord has more important things to do and more important people to see. These disciples just find other people annoying. But now, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, they are going to become the answer to the prayer they've just prayed that God will send out workers into the harvest. They are the answer to their prayer. And tellingly, chapter 10 indicates that Jesus has no expectation that his ministry is going to get diluted by this move. Well, the names at the beginning of chapter 10 that I read out can look a little bit random to us. Some of them we know quite well, don't we? Peter, good old Peter, James, John, maybe Thomas, know a bit about Thomas. Others are more obscure and apparently important only to their mums. Oh, look, my sweet little Thaddeus is in the Bible. Such a good boy. And look, Matthew doesn't give us very many impressive details about these men, probably because there weren't all that many to record. He doesn't say, for example, Philip, who was top of the class in Bible college, or Bartholomew, who had such an amazing prophetic gift, or Andrew, that anointed worship leader, or that amazing youth pastor, Simon the Zealot. They were just plain, ordinary guys. And God wants to reassure us that he calls and uses quite average, quite unremarkable people. But at the same time, I want to say this is no arbitrary list of nobodies either. This is a register of called and equipped people through whom God is going to start to bring in a massive, expanding, global harvest, which we ourselves in this room are part of. And that harvest is still being reaped all over the earth. Is the harvest ripe? What do you think? In the UK? In Darlington? Is that the impression you have? The harvest is ripe? I mean, don't people seem more closed, more antagonistic than ever before? Uh, a former lecturer at Wycliffe Hall Theological College, Elaine Storkey, she tells of a day a few years ago, she was running for a train in London and she got on the train just as the doors were closing. She had had, she says, a tiring and difficult day loads of appointments. She was looking forward to getting home. And when she was on the train, she found herself seated opposite a woman who began inexplicably to start ranting out loud about religion. Uh, she was angry about her granddaughter's confirmation service that she had recently attended. And she herself, this woman who was ranting, like her parents, her grandparents, and grown-up children, was a secular humanist 
and she was incensed that her son's daughter would get involved with Christianity. Now, the cringeometer on that train at that moment, Elaine Storkey says, was off the scale. The tension was palpable. Everybody in the carriage was hiding behind their mobile phone or shrunk down in their seats or looking out the window. And Elaine, to this day, does not know why this woman opposite her launched into this astonishing tirade. Elaine was not herself wearing a big cross or a conspicuous uh, Christian piece of clothing or a large print Bible, anything that would mark her out as being a follower of Jesus. But with everybody else in this carriage looking like they might quite honestly prefer death by electric chair than engaging in conversation with this woman, Elaine gently said to her fellow traveller seated opposite her, she said, obviously you feel strongly about this. I wonder why that might be. Well, the woman continued to vent. And then Elaine leaned forward and she said, can I ask you a question? She said, what would it take for you to believe in God? Well, the woman scoffed. Well, it would have to be something pretty spectacular. So Elaine said, well, how about if God sent somebody you'd never met to tell you how much he loves you? The woman looked down her nose and she, she said, well, that will be a start, I suppose. And Elaine just looked at her and said, what if God put me on this train on the last seat available at this precise moment opposite you to tell you how much you're loved. Now, the other passengers at this point, I must tell you, were positively dying of embarrassment and desperately pretending they weren't listening. But that angry woman suddenly seemed deeply touched. And she began to well up. And a profound conversation followed. It was a breakthrough moment right there. See, the harvest doesn't always look very ripe, but Jesus says it is, and Jesus is right. And I'm for one, I'm not going to argue with Jesus about whether the harvest is ripe or not. And Jesus, like a very good line manager, he is, he gives his guys some clear instructions with some do's and don'ts. So he tells them what they can expect. He tells them how to maximize opportunities and what to do when things go badly. So here's a very, very quick summary because I realize I'm running out of time. Number one, verses five to six. Start with people you've got the most in common with. In their case, it was those lost sheep from his own people, the Jews, that Jesus had so much compassion for. For us, it's maybe people who used to do church but have fallen away. We've got a lot in common with them. Maybe start there. Number two, verses seven to eight. Make your message clear and simple, but don't just talk. Listen and offer to pray when you see a need and expect God to work when you pray. Number three, verses nine to 10. Trust God to give you everything you need. Number four, verses 11 to 13. Look for an open door from interested and responsive people. You'll find some. And number five, verses 14 to 15, don't waste your time 
with negative argumentative people, but do tell them that rejecting Jesus's message is a serious mistake. A few years ago, I went up and down a couple of roads in my neighborhood where I lived at the time, meeting people and giving them alpha invitations for a course we were about to launch. About maybe a quarter of the doors I knocked on, people were out or pretending to be out. Uh, but in less than two hours, I had three really good conversations about the Lord with genuinely interested, curious people. Just two small roads in secular, post-Christian Britain. And one person I met in particular was in a right state because she had just heard in the hour before I met her some traumatic news on the phone. And so we got talking, and she shared with me the trouble she was in. And I just listened, and she just opened up, and I felt for her. And I said, well, I, I'm a Christian. Would you like me to pray for, for you, with you, right now? And she said, well, yes, please. So right there and then, I just asked the Holy Spirit to come upon her, and I prayed into her situation as best I could, prayed my very best prayer, and I watched her before my eyes become calm and at peace as I prayed. She actually started going to the church I was at at the time and became a believer soon after that. Her name was Katrina. 150 years after Jesus said these words about the harvest and the workers, Irenaeus of Lyon wrote about the ongoing mission of the church in his area, and he says this, those who are truly Christ's disciples, he said, receive grace from him to perform miracles in his name. For without doubt, some truly drive out demons so that those who have this been cleansed from evil spirits frequently join themselves to the church. Others foresee things to come. They see visions and other prophetic expressions. Still others heal the sick by laying their hands on them, and they're made whole. Yes, moreover, as I have said, the dead have even been raised and remained among us for many years. What more shall I say? It is not possible to name the number of gifts which the church throughout the whole world has received from God in the name of Jesus Christ. For as she has received freely from God, freely also does she minister to others." That's for those who think all this died out with the apostles. It's 150 years after Jesus said these words. As I end, ask God to touch the lives of those you know. Most will not even have thought very much about God or what place he should have in their lives. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the harvest is ripe. So let's pray.